0: What story are you living? What story are you living? Every one of us is living some story, some understanding of the way that things are that guides us, that shapes us. It's, it's the story that we're living that we cling to when things are difficult, when things are confusing, when things are frustrating, we often go back to our story. When we think about the future, we, we think in terms of the story that we're living. Everything about us is shaped by the story that we are living, and so what story are you living? As a church family, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're in our 16th and final week. We're concluding that study today as we've learned through the Gospel of Mark what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And also, as a church family, we conclude today our four weeks of prayer. We, we wanted to end the study uh, in, in action uh, through prayer. And we've been praying in unity and also expectation because we believe the gospel shapes us. It is the story that we live. In fact, on Friday, as we concluded the, uh, the four weeks of prayer, one of the lines in that final prayer was this, God, give me the strength to live the gospel. You see, the good news, the good story that God has shown us is not simply something to be believed in, it's something to be lived. For those of you that are new to Desert Springs, maybe you're still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, I'm so glad you're here today. You are most welcome. And you get a great opportunity today to eavesdrop in on some of the foundation, and in fact, the foundation that our church is built upon. But there's going to be a few moments, we're going to do things a little bit differently today, there's going to be a few moments in today's service where we change up a little bit, and, and I'm going to talk to those who call Desert Springs their church home, so in those moments, I hope you won't let that weird you out, I know being at church is weird enough, and I'm just glad that you're here, uh, but when those moments come, uh, don't, feel, uh, don't feel weird, um, I feel weird most of the time, I'm here anyways, so you and I can commiserate after Uh, But for those of you who call Desert Springs your church home, I'm gonna ask you to do something. And in fact, if you don't wanna out yourself, you can participate in this as well. Uh, In the back of the seat in front of you, you should see a prayer request card. Uh, For those of you that are uh, in the bay or maybe you're in one of the seats that don't have a seat back, should be around you or you can just turn around. I want everyone to show me what that card looks like. If you would please grab that card. It says prayer request on it. Yep, looks kind of like that. Actually, I I can't tell. It kind of looks kind of like that. No, but maybe it's, okay, so you've got, but maybe it looks different over there. No, it looks the same over there. Does it look different? Oh, oh yeah, okay, so you guys all have the same card. Excellent. I want you to hold on to that. Uh, One of the things that we said during our four weeks of prayer is that as a church family, we were gonna pray in unity and expectation that God would speak to us, that God would move as we think about what it means for us to live in light of his story uh, in the coming season of ministry. And so today we're gonna hear from you on paper. So you won't be asked to stand up and, and say anything, but, but I am gonna ask that you would write. Maybe God's been uh, showing you something, revealing something to you, laying something on your heart. Whatever that is, there's gonna be a moment here in a few minutes where I'm gonna ask that you would uh, take that. You guys can do that during the sermon as well. Uh, if ever there's a moment where you're like, I want to write that down, I want We're going to capture that. We're going to commit to continuing to pray through those things um, today, because the story that we live shapes everything that we do. That's individually and as a church family. And there is multiple stories that we can pick from. One of the most popular stories. One of the most popular ways of understanding how the world works is this that I've gotta go out there and make something of myself. I've gotta garner as much power and influence, material possessions that I can get my hands on so that I can be comfortable and secure and prosperous. But you explode that out and it ends up being, oftentimes others will pay the price for my power grabs. At a communal level, oftentimes it means war and violence. You see, our personal kingdoms as well as the kingdoms in which we live are all shaped by the story that we believe ourselves to be living. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, i encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, there's some available on the tables in the back. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, and then eventually 16, you see that worldview on prominent display the worldview of selfish or self-centered power. And you see another worldview, another story at play as well, and it's the good news. You guys know all news is just a story, right? That's right, Caleb! Thank you for answering me. And so guys, the first hour is crushing you right now, okay? So you guys got to sleep in a little bit. We're gonna need a little back and forth. You know I'm up here working, so you guys all know that all news is just a story, right? Yeah, okay, good. There. Hey, friends. Glad you could join us today at Desert Springs. Uh, all news is a story. And the good news is the good story of God's grace. And it starts like this. In fact, it's classic, classic story opener. It goes like this, the beginning of the story. In the beginning. That's right. You guys have seen this movie before. In the book of Genesis, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. And as the crowning glory of his creation, he made people. In the image and likeness of God, he created them, it says. Male and female, he created them. And he created people, you and me, for union with one another and union with him. But people, you and me, Rebelled. We took God off the throne of our hearts. We, we didn't like this story where God's the center of the universe. And we really like this story. And we started believing in this story. And we started living the story in which we are the center of the universe. And brokenness ensues. And God had a choice to make. Kill them all or restore them all and redeem And thanks be to God, he chose the latter. But how God would redeem his people, how he would restore all that which is broken and make it whole again, that really is the question, right? How do we see this story of God's goodness, of his kingdom, how do we see that become real? You see, Christmas is weird, Like, you guys all got your little nativity scenes out yet? Yeah? Got them all out yet? You may, maybe you're about to? If you don't, we put ours up three weeks ago. What's your problem? We love Jesus. I don't know what your problem is, so, you know turkeys who cares about turkeys I love the Lord so I celebrate Christmas for the appropriate amount of time which is eight weeks instead of four I don't know what your problem is so you got your nativity scenes out you with me so far and on your little nativity scenes they're all a little cute and cozy and do you know that that's like a, a miniature statue to the king and creator of the universe becoming flesh like that's weird man that it would be like that you see, it's in direct conflict with the story that we generally believe that power is something to be grasped onto and used and leveraged to increase my station in life. Think about how you use power in the workplace. Think about how you've leveraged power in the home. You know what's weirder than the nativity set? Most of our holiday dinners. And how have we used power? Power. How have we used our power to elevate ourselves, to make things more comfortable for us, to make things, to make ourselves more influential, to make ourselves more prominent? You see, that's the story that we're all familiar with. It's a story that's been told 10,000 times over. But Christmas is a critical part of the good story in which God takes on flesh And even as that happens, there's this good news, right? I mean, when the good news message was first declared by the angel, it was declared to a people who were occupied by Rome. The Jewish people, they did not have their own kingdom established. Rather, they were being occupied. And if you remember your world history class, you might remember that they were first occupied by the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks. Y'all ever heard of Alexander the Great? Okay, so, and then Rome. They're tired of being oppressed. They're tired of their Roman occupiers. They are ready for someone to save them from what? Put yourself in their shoes. What's your number one wish this time of year? That we would establish our own kingdom once more, that we would throw off the yoke of our oppressors, that there would be a savior who would come and kill the what? Romans. Romans. When that angel gave that message, no one was thinking about a cross. No one was thinking about death. Everyone, uh, for, for their Messiah, they were all thinking about death for the Romans. You know, and it's interesting, it's even weirder, your little nativity set. Who are some of the players? Well, you've got Mary and Joseph, of course, the little baby, donkey, camel, shepherds. Wait, not soldiers? What does that tell you about God's story? What does that tell you about God's power? Not soldiers, but shepherds. Oh, certainly there were kingmakers. And by the way, uh, according to the, the the biblical account, I hate to be a stickler on this. Those magi, you guys know what I'm talking about—the wise men—they they weren't there at the initial like deal. They came uh, a little while later, a few months, maybe a couple years later. And so I'm not telling you to clean up your nativity set, just put a little post-it note (laughs) that just says, uh, what what do they call it, license, Uh, theatrical license, dramatic license. You know, it's interesting, they weren't kingmakers from his own people. In fact, what's fascinating about the Magi, uh, and whenever you put your uh, nativity set up, you should always put them coming from the east. Because in the east, it wasn't the Roman Empire, it was an enemy empire which may be one of the reasons why Herod is so freaked out when these enemy kingmakers come in asking where the new king is. See, Christmas is a story of power grabs, for Herod orders the slaughter of every boy two and younger. Why? Because he's living out the story of selfish power. You know, it was constantly frustrating to Jesus' disciples They wanted him to be the savior. When he he rode into Jerusalem, people were singing, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They wanted political, they wanted military power. Nobody had crucifixion in mind, everybody wanted insurrection. You know what insurrection is? It's when the people rise up and take what? Power, they want insurrection not a crucifixion. This is why it was so frustrating to many of Jesus' disciples when they were like Jesus, like James and John, you see it in the Gospel of Mark. They go to Jesus, say, "Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, we want to sit in the two seats of power, your your right hand and your left hand. We want to sit there. We want to be when you come into your kingdom, Jesus, in power, we want second place and third place. We're never going to take first. Of course, of course, we're humble." And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. It's interesting who ends up sitting, or at least hanging, on his right and his left when he ushers in his kingdom. Two insurrectionistic criminals. And Jesus would say to his disciples when they would talk to him about power grabs, he would say things like, it's so frustrating. They would say things like, if you want to find your life, you got to lose it. If you want power, you gotta give it away. A true leader is a servant to all. Some of you may be familiar with that infamous scene where Jesus gets down and washes his disciples' feet. Christmas is weird. But really, I mean, like Jesus' life is weird. He's not playing by the same rules. He seems to be telling a completely different story than we're used to. And it may be why all of their hopes and frustrations came to fruition when Jesus said, you see this temple, this epicenter of your nationalistic identity and power? It will crumble. And perhaps it was in that moment that many of those who followed after Jesus really began to realize, well, he's not gonna kill the Romans, is he? He's not the kind of savior I want. This is not what I want Jesus to be. And there are many of you here today who are angry with God because he is not operating the way you want him to. Jesus is not behaving as you want him to be. The Jesus of your imagination is being met with the real Jesus. And it's causing frustration. The disciples certainly were frustrated as well. In fact, it may have been why Judas... Oh, see, if, if we did a little trivia uh, and I said, and I'm not going to do this, but I said, hey, let's all, let's all just for fun, which is not fun, but let's all for fun name all the, all the disciples, the 12. We, we might be able to wrestle our way through like, well, oh, there's Peter, James, John, whatever. but I'll tell you who no one ever forgets, Judas. And Judas just did what we have grown accustomed to doing disgusted with who Jesus really is, disappointed with who Jesus really is, just turns on him. This is not the type of Messiah that I want. You see, I want one who gives us power. But he keeps saying, I've got to give it away. And there was a group of people ready to betray Jesus. Judas went to them, it says it in the text. He went to the religious leaders who were plotting to kill Jesus. And they were ready, willing, and able. By the way, religious leaders are not always uh, murderous, I'm not above it, but they had allowed their own self-righteousness to blind them to righteousness embodied right in front of them. They had done so many good things for God that had garnered them power that they couldn't even see God in the flesh right in front of them. All they knew of Jesus was that he was a threat to their what? Power. See, they were living the same story we all live, that I gotta get as much power for myself as I can. And so they put Jesus on trial in a religious uh, court. And they sentenced him. They convicted him of claiming to be God. The text says blasphemy. But what's interesting is they did not have any power to execute, so they go to the Romans. Remember who their occupying force was? The Romans. They go to the Romans, they go to Pilate, and they say, Pilate. They accused Jesus in front of Pilate. In fact, uh, listen to this and see if anything sounds uh, familiar. This is a chapter 15, verse uh, 1. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tra- tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor, by the way. Verse 2. So Pilate asked him, are you the... Now, time out. What did Pilate... As an emissary or a governor in the roman empire what was he charged with keeping the peace by means of what power see if pilate became powerless there would be chaos in fact they would lose their claim on the territory what is pilate concerned about a theology discussion or a political military discussion notice that it's the jews the jewish leaders who, again, not all of them were, uh, had evil intent, but some of them certainly did. They accused Jesus of blasphemy, claiming to be God. Pilate does not say, are you God? What does Pilate say? He says, are you the king of the Jews? What's a king? It's a political, military leader. You see, what Pilate is asking here is, are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to Rome? Now, what's interesting is, in the way that Jesus answers, he says, yes, he says, you say so. But the way he answers clues Pilate into, this is not an insurrectionist. In fact, the text says that Pilate knew that it was because of envy that the religious leaders turned Jesus over to him. Envy, power grab. It was the story they were living Pilate did not want to have Jesus executed, but the religious leaders were on him. They were flexing all of their power to have Jesus, a threat to their power, executed. Pilate thought, perhaps, that there was a way out when he was reminded, and we're reminded in the text, that at this festival, at this season of Passover, it was customary for the Romans to release a prisoner. And so perhaps Pilate thought, if I can release, if I can go to the crowd and say to the crowd, who should I release? They all love Jesus, they're gonna say Jesus. And so he takes this person named Barabbas. Now it's interesting, chickity, chickity, check. What does everyone want Jesus to do? Overthrow who? The Romans, that's called an insurrection or a rebellion. You with me so far? Look at what Pilate does next. He brings out Barabbas, verse 7. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels. Wait, what was the word? Rebels. Who had committed murder during the rebellion. Another way to translate, the insurrection. And what do the people cry out when, when Pilate goes before the crowd and says, Do you want? It's the old Ecce Homo scene. This one or this one? And the leaders are in the crowd, stirring up the crowd, and what does the crowd cry out? Give us the insurrectionist. The irony, of course, is that's what they've been wanting Jesus to be this whole time. Give us Barabbas. And then Pilate says, what should I do with Jesus? And the crowd says infamous, infamously, crucify him. So Pilate does the whole washing his hands. The soldiers mock him. They call him king of the Jews. And then in verse 25, and here's what we're gonna do. Some of you have heard this story a thousand times. For some of you, it's the first time. I'm gonna ask that everyone would right now pause and allow this to be as the first time. I'm gonna ask that you would close your eyes. We're not gonna do anything weird. I'm just gonna read. I would just ask that you would close your eyes and allow yourself to be there in the moment, if if you don't mind. Now, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him, the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals, insurrectionists with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, Ha-ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. There you are, watching. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here you are at the cross, King Jesus, the God of the universe has become one of us, giving up his rights, giving up his power, giving up his preferences for your sake taking our place, taking the just penalty for our rebellion, experiencing what it means to be forsaken by the Father so that you and I will never hear, I forsake you. Tearing down the dividing wall between us and God so that all people would be reconciled to him and to one another. Okay, open your eyes. There's one interesting detail, and that is, after the cry that Jesus let out, there was one who was standing right there. Oh, those closest to him, his family and disciples, they've all fled or are watching at a distance. The religious leaders are done with their mocking, but there's one who stands, who sees, and who hears. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God, the first to utter this truth was a battle-hardened Roman soldier. You see, the story that we all tell ourselves, the story of selfish power grabs, it's a story for us, at the exclusion of others. But the good news, the good story, the good story of Jesus is that it is for all people, for the stranger, the foreigner, the alien, the outcast, and the outsider. And you see it here when the Roman centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. What story are you living? what is Jesus speaking to you right now? Remember those cards we all pulled out? I'm gonna ask that you would take hold of one of those. I'm gonna ask the band to come out, and they're gonna do a song. I'm gonna ask that you would reflect on the words of the song. And during this moment, I would like for you to consider this question. What has God spoken to you as you thought about this four weeks of prayer? What is God speaking to you Perhaps it's been something over the last four weeks. Perhaps that's something right now. But we serve a living God. So what is he speaking to you now? And I'm gonna ask that you would hold on to that card, and we'll continue on in just a few moments. The story does not end there. They took Jesus' body off of the cross, and they buried him. And then on Mark 16, verse one to the end. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And that is the conclusion of every story. Every story of power grab. Every story of self-centered advancement. Every story in which I am the center of the universe. Every story ends in death but not this story. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. The end. This is one of the worst endings (laughs) to any story I have ever heard or read in my entire life. Can you believe he said that in church? <laughs> you have a story where three of Jesus' disciples go to the tomb expecting a body. There is no body. There's just probably some angel looking dude or dude looking angel. I don't know which way you want to figure that one out. And he says, "You're afraid." Of course I'm afraid. Look at you. And where's the body? He says, Don't be afraid. You guys are looking for Jesus of Nazareth? Uh-huh. The one who is crucified? Yep. He ain't here. He is risen. Indeed? Yeah. That's where that tradition started, by the way. It's not a text. And then what happened? He said, go, tell. Go tell the disciples. And what did they do? They got all afraid and they ran. And it says, let me me read it again. This is the last line in Mark's gospel. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Even Disney can nail the ending and they lived happily ever after. By the way, this is highly likely. I mean, it's so frustrating, right? Like you you want this to get wrapped up. You want the story to be finished, don't you? I mean, every, every literature class tells you, you got to end, you got to conclude, baby. you got to finish the story. In fact, it's so frustrating that, that some of you who have print Bibles, I don't, can you guys see this? Look real, what's that word right there? Just kidding. So one of the things in my print Bible is there's a big line there, and it's got these things in brackets that say, some people add, or some manuscripts add the rest of it. It's called the longer ending of Mark. And we think that what happened was, is, uh, and it's, it's there for you guys, can look at it in your own Bibles if you'd like. What we think happened is, people throughout the ages were so frustrated that they like, finished the story. They kinda borrowed from the other gospels and put it in there. But literally, the way that it's written, we know Mark didn't do it. It's not written in his style. So why did Mark end with, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid? Why did Mark end the story? Now, here's what's interesting about Mark, and you know this. Mark is very tricky. He's always inviting you in. He's always leaving out details, so you lean in a little bit more to the story. In fact, there's sometimes where he gives a detail, and it's kind of weird. Like, like, do you remember that scene where Jesus is on the cross, and it's the one cry from the cross that we get in Mark, and it's not in English? It's also not in Greek, it's not in Latin. It's in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama, sabatani. Mark includes the exact words spoken by Jesus from the cross. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to draw you in. You see, Mark knows something. He knows that we're all living a story. And he wants you, as a disciple of Jesus, to see your story Is the continuation of the story that he started. You see, it's interesting. If you go back to Mark chapter one, verse one, it doesn't say the complete chronicles of Jesus or the entire biography of Jesus. He says the beginning of the good news or the good story of Jesus. And I believe that Mark intentionally leaves it open because Jesus is still at work. He's not done working yet. He's not finished. The conclusion hasn't happened. And it may be that Mark wanted us to see ourselves as a continuation of that story. What story are you living? As a church family, we're taking time. We're 41 years old as a church. There are two paths that we can go down, comfort or the cross. To put it another way, comfort or faithfulness what story are we living? The other interesting thing is the command given to the disciples. To Mary Magdalene, Mary, Jesus' mother, and Salome, they're given a command. Go. Tell. And we know that they eventually did, even though they were afraid here, because the disciples who were back, who didn't go with them, heard about it. And so did millions and millions of millions of people, including you. You see, the story that we're used to, the story of self-preservation, the story of self-comfort, the story of, uh, of self-advancement, uh, of selfish power, that story is a story that isolates us from others. But this story is a story of inclusion. All people are invited to hear this story and to enter in. Friend, for those of you who have heard this story, and this is the first time you're really hearing it, there is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. He's given you his love and grace freely. What that also means is there is nothing that you can do that is not conquered over by his love and grace. He says to you, enter into my story. For those of you who follow Jesus as his disciple, Is it a story that compels you? Is it a story by which you are living? Is it a story that guides you? What story are you living? Not not what story are you giving cognitive assent to. What story are you living? If someone was to read your life, what story would they discover there? Then I'm gonna ask this. Who in your life do you need to invite into this story? who do you need to invite into this story? You see, the wonderful thing about Jesus is he says to everybody, come here, come to me. And he says to his church, you, go and tell. God has placed people in your life. Who is he calling you to invite into this story? Perhaps there's people in your life that you've been hiding this story from, and maybe it's time to come out to them. There are some of us who, frankly, we've just grown apathetic towards them. Still others, maybe, we've just been trying to ignore the conviction of the Spirit because we don't want to get uncomfortable. Who do you need to invite into this story? Who do you need to tell? Remember those cards? I'm gonna ask everybody to take another one for me. You don't have to do anything with it, but just it'll make me feel better if you take a card. You guys could show me those cards again. We're gonna do this one more time. I'm going to put up on the screen here, and I'm going to actually ask the band to come out to. Who has God brought to mind? I'm going to ask that you would commit that to writing. Who has God? It could be a, one person, could be ten people, could be a group of people. Who has God brought to mind? And then, what's your next step with them? For some of us, it's I need to pray for that person. For others, better yet, it's I need to pray with that person. Still, for others, it may be that I need to bring them with me into a church setting. Now, real quick, we do not bring people to church so that they can hear the gospel. You can share the gospel with them. But when we gather together, we proclaim as a diverse community what the gospel looks like in the context of relationship and community. That's why we invite people in, to see what the gospel looks like writ large in our life and lives. And finally, for some of us, it's, I, I need to invest time as this friend of mine or this family member or this friend of me or whoever it is, as they grow closer to Jesus. Maybe they still don't know Jesus. Maybe they just started following Jesus. I need to invest my time in helping them pursue Jesus. That, that's called discipleship, by the way. Who is God bringing to mind? And what's your next move? What's your next step? Here's the deal. I know for a lot of us, myself included, We've been putting this off, but the gospel is a story that's to be lived out and to to be told so that we might invite all in. Who is God bringing to mind? What's your next step? Let today be the day that you commit that to the Lord.